So this is the eighth episode of Back from the Abyss. And I think this is kind of a milestone, at least a small milestone, because as Chris, my co-producer, good friend, and sound guy told me recently, after doing some research, the average podcast crashes and burns after seven episodes. But I would like to think that we are actually just taking off right now. I checked the other day, we've been downloaded in 54 countries, 662 towns and cities all over the world. But I think what's most exciting and powerful for me is that each of our storytellers has been deeply and powerfully moved by telling their stories. And they were the inspiration to start this podcast. And I know Chris and I have found incredible just camaraderie, power, friendship, and gratitude in working with them. Another thing I think that this eighth episode has spawned is the honest feedback of my friends, family, and colleagues who are whispering in my ear or saying to my face, why is your introduction so somber and depressing and bleak and grim? And would you change it, please? <laughs> and I think what they mean by that, I know what they mean by that. It's not the music. People love the music. It's it's a, it's Well, here's the thing. When I recorded the first episode, the first thing we recorded was the introduction. I thought, okay, this is a very solemn, serious moment. So I need to use my very serious, like, theater introduction movie voice. And so, yeah, I think Back from the Abyss introduction now sounds a little spooky, almost haunted house-esque. And I hope none of you are turned off by it, that you hung in there for the rest of it. But I promise you in the next episode... We're going to keep the same cool music, but I'm going to change up my voice a little bit, a little less ominous and more welcoming. This episode today is the first of a two-part series on EMDR, which is a trauma healing treatment, which you're going to learn a lot about. It was an incredibly powerful, life-changing treatment for me a number of years ago, and I'm going to talk about that a little more in the next episode. And I wanted to devote at least two episodes to this because trauma is so prevalent such a huge part of mental health and one of the most difficult things to treat. And EMDR is a really exciting and powerful tool. And I think you're going to be very interested and probably have a lot more questions after you hear this episode. Welcome to Back from the Abyss where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. In medical school, I had an internal medicine attending who used to lament that nearly every medical case that was unusual or complicated or confusing or mysterious always came back to alcohol. 20 years later, I would like to propose a revision to her frustrated synthesis of allopathic Western medicine. I believe that a great deal of the medical complexity and treatment resistance that we see every day in clinics and hospitals across the globe is either caused or exacerbated by trauma. By hijacking the body's fight-flight-freeze mechanism and deranging the natural rhythms of both cortisol and sleep, Unresolved trauma can act like a toxin, seeping into the deepest functional roots of the nervous and immune systems and turning the body against itself. In today's episode of Back from the Abyss, our guest Sophie tells the story of her teenage self watching her mother die from a medication allergy 
and the horrifying consequences that unfolded in the years after this trauma. She was one of the most loving people you'll ever meet. Very, very um, compassionate, caring. She was very involved in church. Um, just really loved people and was a servant. Uh, she Anybody needed babysitting, they needed food, they needed whatever they needed, she'd drop what she was doing and go take care of them. Um, many, many hours spent on the phone counseling other women that were having a hard time or you know, at homeschool meetings and things like that. She, she loved it, absolutely loved being a mom. Um, How was your relationship with her? At the time that she passed away, it was not a good relationship. We had a very contentious relationship. Um, <clears throat> I was 16, of course, and um, thought I knew it all. And, of course, I did not, and my mother knew I did not. <laughs> and... Um, we just did not have the best of relationships. We um, did not get along or see eye to eye on things at that point in my life. Sophie's mother had just had oral surgery on that fateful day and asked Sophie to bring her a second pain medication from the bathroom. So, of course, I have to run to the bathroom, root, root around in the cabinet to find it. And if, this is all taking time, and I'm super impatient. I do not want to wait. Um finally find it. I bring it to my mom and she says, I said, okay, I've got to go. And she said, no, wait a minute. And she sits and she looks at these two bottles and she's studying them for a good 30 seconds. And I'm, you know, impatient. I got to go mom. And she said, well, I can't remember if which one they gave your daddy, but I guess they know what they're doing. And she handed me my dad's prescription and I put it back and I'm like, all right, I'm going to dance. And she said, all right, have a fun, have a good day. Off I went to dance. And, um, I don't remember if I was late or not, but I remember afterwards was a big deal because my dance instructor asked me to stick behind because she put me on point that day, which is a huge deal for anybody that's a big dancer. It's a big deal. That's a big celebration day. So I was, of course, excited, but I was 10 minutes late. And my sister comes in in a half. Let's, we have to go. We have to go. I have plans today, too. So we get home, and I walk in the door, and there's a totally different feeling in the house. As I look at my mother before I heard the munchkins up, I just, I remember her face so clearly. It was, it was very white. She was using her breathing machine because she had asthma and she thought she was having an asthma attack. And so she's using her breathing machine and her face was just pale, pale white. And her eyes are the size of baseballs. And those big, beautiful chocolate brown eyes are looking at me like, help. I can't, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And her lips were blue. And I just remember thinking, I hope they get here quick. And I, I'm doing my part by getting the kids upstairs because they don't need to see mom like that. You know, the older one can take care of mom. So I'm getting the kids upstairs and there's only one window that looks out onto the street. And so the kids want to make sure that they're there when the ambulance gets there. So we're all huddled around this tall, high window with the kids lying in the bathtub with their little feet so they can see and one's on the toilet and I'm holding one of my youngest brothers when they bring my mom out probably 30 minutes later on the stretcher the kids are are yelling mom I love you I love you mom I love you and my younger brother that I'm holding is is sobbing and he says I don't want mama to die I don't want mama to die please I don't want mama to die and I looked at him and I said hey buddy it's all right 
mom's going to be just fine. She's not going to die. It's all going to be okay. You remember the last time she had to go to the hospital? She was there, but she came home. It's going to be okay. And um, just trying to reassure all the, the brothers and sisters that, you know, it's it's going to be okay, you know. And all the while trying to convince myself at the same time. Um, so they took her to the hospital, and um, she did not wake up. Somewhere in the next day and a half, I had convinced myself that that was not the case, that mom was going to be fine. She was going to wake up. We're going to get a miracle. Those tests were going to be fine. And, and she was coming home. That, that, that The alternative was not an option. Um, and so when Monday came and they had, they had done all the testing and it had come back the same as the first tests, she was not going to be coming home. Um, I still had not convinced myself. We had a big family meeting and my dad had asked everyone, we have no alternative. We have to turn the machines off. So it's time for us to go in and say our goodbyes. So he took us in couple at a time and we were supposed to say goodbye to mom but of course me not thinking that we're gonna get I'm gonna get a miracle mom's mom's coming home I didn't say goodbye I was talking to her and whispering to her how much you know I was gonna explain and we were gonna celebrate that I got on point when she woke up and what we were gonna do when she came home and um so I I didn't say goodbye there was no need to say goodbye um and so once everyone had said their goodbyes and my dad had gone in by himself to turn off the machines, he came out and he had said, you know, your mom is gone. And at that minute, I thought, well, that's not right. That, that can't be. That's not how it was supposed to happen. We were supposed to get our miracle and she was supposed to come home. <clears throat> we did not get our miracle. And as I'm processing all of this, my younger brother that I had been holding in the bathroom came up to me with this horrible, hate-filled look. And he said to me, you lied. You told me Mama wasn't going to be fine and she was not going to die. You lied to me and I hate you. And my world at that point just came crashing down around me. And I knew that life was never going to be the same. And I did not know what it was going to look like or how I was even going to cope in the days and months that went forward. Did you suspect that that medication may have played a role? Absolutely. We were told that she was prescribed the the wrong medication and um, she was severely allergic to the medication that she was prescribed. And she knew that she was allergic to the aspirin-based medication but she did not know which one they had actually prescribed on the on the pill form. Did you blame yourself? Of course. I'm the one that handed her that, that bottle. And I'm the one that was impatient and didn't want to wait for her to fully research what she needed to look at. In the months and years after her mom died, Sophie experienced classic PTSD symptoms, including flashbacks, avoidance, particularly of hospitals an overactive fight-flight response known as hyperarousal, and a constant sense of dread and impending doom. 
However, as untreated trauma can do, it eventually morphed and metastasized and began to hijack her body in bizarre and potentially life-threatening ways. So after mom passed and we had the funeral and the things went back to, quote-unquote, our new normal, um, I did notice some things that um, if I heard a siren, if I heard um, any type of a, a siren, if I saw the lights, if I saw fire trucks or anyone, if they had their lights on, I, if I was driving, I had to stop and pull over on the side of the road. I had flashbacks of when um, they were up, coming to get mom and taking her away. And um, I just had these horrible, awful episodes where I just could not deal with those, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, triggers, that when those things happened, it brought back these floods of memories, and these, along with the memories come the flood of emotions, and it's all of a sudden, and it's all at once, and it's these waves that come over you, and I just couldn't deal with that. Um, and it, it, it kind of ebbed and flowed, um, and then later on in um, my life, uh, after I got divorced, I had noticed um, one day I was sitting um, with my daughter up in our in my bedroom she was getting ready for bed and I was eating a couple of homegrown cucumbers and I had started coughing and having a hard time breathing and I'm thinking I'm having an asthma attack um so I went and got my inhaler and I called my daughter in and she said mama I think we need to call your friend to come over because I'm I'm worried about you and I said I'm just having asthma I'll be okay um, and about 10 minutes later, it was getting exponentially worse. And she said, I, I'm calling. I don't care. I'm calling. So my friend came over and walked in the door and took one look at me and said, we are going to the emergency room right now. And since mom had been in, you know, had passed, I had this fear of emergency rooms, this terrifying, horrifying fear of going to the hospital. I just, it was I just knew that I, if I went, I was not coming home. And um, but you didn't have asthma before. I had I've had asthma since I was little, but it never was very bad mm-hmm. um, until my later later years. Mm-hmm. And then when this happened, I just thought I'm having an attack. Well, I got to the hospital, and the the normal typical uh, treatment that they give for asthmatics, the nebulizer treatments weren't working. So they gave me a shot of epinephrine, and that immediately cleared up my symptoms, uh, along with some Benadryls. And they, they looked at me and they said, that was not an asthma attack. That was an allergic reaction. What were you doing when this has started? And I had told them, I said, I, I was sitting on my bed, eating a homegrown cucumber that they don't use pesticides or anything like that. I'd washed them and they said, just stay away from the cucumbers from now on. And how and- many years was this after your mom's death? This was approximately mm, 16, 17 years after she passed. Mm -hmm. So you'd had some PTSD-like symptoms with sirens and deep dread panic around emergency rooms and being triggered by sort of 911 emergency stuff, but no respiratory asthma, you know, allergic severe. reaction stuff. No, mm. not at all. Not at all. And um, I remember it just got exponentially worse from there. The, a couple of days later, not thinking, I had 
I had was eating a boxed lunch and had a pickle in it and I just pull pick up this pickle take a big bite and swallow it before I realized what I've done and my friend that had taken me to the emergency room was sitting next to me and she turned to me as I'm horrifically looking at this pickle in my hand and she said please tell me you did not eat that and I said I did and at that moment is when everything just started shutting down my nose starts running my eyes start running I start coughing and my I literally start not being able to breathe everything just shuts completely down and um it just from there it got to where if there was a cucumber on the plate, I, I would have a reaction. And from there, it got worse to where if I was even around a cucumber or a pickle in the room, it was an automatic trigger and I was in the hospital. Um, it happened with uh, bananas as well. Um, and if I was even around them, it was a trigger and I was in the emergency room. And, and um, it got so bad at the end there for a while I was going to the emergency room three four times a week um, with these anaphylactic reactions and getting epinephrine shots each time each time mm -hmm. more multiple because I would go before I would go to the emergency room I would make sure that I was bad enough that I needed to use my EpiPen um, I didn't go for just a, a cough here or a sniffle there it, it had to be really really severe um, and the Benadryl not taking care of it before I would go um, there was a couple of times that I was in ICU overnight um, because of the, the severity of those reactions. And it got to where I would have the reaction and then I would have rebound reactions four or five hours later when the Benadryl wore off. And they would have to give me a whole nother set of a round of, of medication. Um, and I did that for months. Um, and then started creeping in were anxiety and panic attacks. Um, two, three, four times a week, I would be debilitated two and three hours where I just could not function. I would think, you know, my chest would be hurting like I'm going to die. I have this impending sense of dread. Something bad is, is about to happen and I don't know what it is. And, I, um, and it just got so overwhelming that my life was out of control with the, the panic and anxiety attacks as well as the allergic reactions. I was not functioning mm. at all. Over what period of time was this all spiraling? The and allergic reactions started and got um, worse over over about four or five years, but the last six months was exponential. Um, I went from maybe one or two a month to three a week in those last two, three months. How could you live your life? I didn't. I didn't. I lived on Benadryl and epinephrine, and I was losing weight because I couldn't eat anything. Um, I lost about 15 pounds. Um, I couldn't eat or drink anything. I'd cut out caffeine because I was desperately trying to figure out what I was reacting to. Yeah, like your body is shutting down now to anything, everything. Everything. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I, I can't function at all. And I had been to countless doctors here in town, and I ended up um, at Anschutz with one of the specialists down there even trying to help me. Um, several different uh, trips down there daily, you know, full days where you go down and you do testing and um, just them doing everything they can to try and figure out what was going on. 
Um, and then I had um, a therapist friend that I really re trusted and respected suggest going and that this could possibly be linked to my mom and the trauma that I experienced when I was younger. Um, and he suggested that I try a, uh, a type of therapy called EMDR. EMDR is the acronym for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, a type of trauma therapy that uses repeated imagined exposure to past traumas, while also incorporating various types of bilateral activity or stimulation. In this therapy, a patient might think about and or discuss a trauma while looking left, then right, or holding oscillating paddles in each hand, or tapping on the right side of the body, then left, or listening to alternating tones in each ear. The theory behind EMDR is that alternating right-left brain stimulation during exposure to a traumatic memory can eventually dial down the trauma, making it less awful and overwhelming, essentially moving it from boiling over on the front burner to simmering slowly on a distant back burner. What made this wise therapist suggest to Sophie that she might try trauma treatment to address her life-threatening food allergies and bouts of anaphylaxis? I'm guessing that he had seen other patients who had had long, painful, and fruitless journeys through the Western medical machine without getting clear answers, then found that, surprise, severe trauma can and often does trigger a vast array of complex and often bewildering symptoms and clinical presentations. I found a therapist here in town that I really respected. I met with her a couple of different times, and um, we explored. She sat and explained to me exactly what we were going to do, what it was all about, different steps that we were going to take um, in our therapy sessions when we were doing this. Um, and what did she describe to you? Because I'm guessing most of our listeners have no idea what an EMDR session might look like. So our sessions looked like I would show up and we would um, just talk a little bit about what, what was going on currently in my day, my current mood, how I was currently feeling. Um, and if we needed to do some um, calming and relaxing exercises before we started, uh, because they can get a little intense, um, a little emotionally intense. Um, so I would sit on the couch once I did some of those relaxing exercises and I would hold, um, she would hold a box in her lap that had controls on it that she would turn off and on. And then it was connected to two wires and those wires were connected to these little tiny, um, they look like little contact case paddles that sit in your, the palm of your hand and they alternate vibrating and you just cup your hands around them and she puts the machine on different frequencies. And then I start to describe um, the trauma or my story that um, I had such a hard time with and the, the emotions. And I sit and I describe this as she's got these paddles that are vibrating in my hands. And at any time, if it becomes too emotional or I get too overwhelmed, we can stop. We, there were several times that I would get, you know, three sentences in and we would have to stop and take a break. Mm. Are your eyes open or eyes closed as you're doing? It totally depends on the patient. Mine, I usually closed my eyes because I was more comfortable um, visualizing in my head when my eyes were closed. And I was more comfortable telling that story when I could see it. It was a lot more intense as well for me, though, when I closed my eyes. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think when she met with you initially, she thought, oh, this is probably trauma-related? Or was she more kind of going on a fishing expedition with the EMDR to see, well, maybe this will work, maybe not? It was more a fishing expedition, I believe, was we're going to try this and see if it works and see if it helps. If it doesn't, then we'll move on to something else that we can try. But this is what we're doing. And and the weeks and months that we did this, um, and it was every time I told my story again and again, it got some days were harder. But over time, I felt that my storytelling didn't bring up the traumatic emotions that it did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And, and were it, these sessions focused on your mom's death specifically? Yes. So when you say telling your story, this was iterations of going over and over your mom's death, your guilt yes. and blame. and yes. Yes, it was one of, it was just an amazing, I just had to keep telling the story over and over again. But every time I did, closer to, after we had had several sessions, um, months of sessions, and I noticed it got easier to tell the story. It got, I thought of it differently, for lack of a better word. It was... Mm. um, Was she giving you guidance, saying, hey, Sophie, today try telling the story with this voice or this perspective or try to bring more self-compassion into it? She did not. She told me that this is my story and however I felt I needed to tell it, you know, to be kind to myself. But at the same time, this was me telling my story. Um, and I, she thought it was very important. And we gave, we gave different, um, she said, think about how you would look at this trauma does it have a does it have a shape does it have a voice does it have those type of things and kind of giving voice to those feelings that I had in addition to what we were doing with the memory um remembering and and talking about that story Mm -hmm. um but I remember one day in particular it was in September Um, and my mom's birthday was coming up and then shortly after is the anniversary of her death and that particular day we had been talking about my mom and how I honor her and what I can do coming up on her birthday and no one had ever asked me how you honor your mom well my thought had always been the more you love someone the more you hurt and your bigger your love when they leave, the bigger your hurt and your pain. And if you let go of that, it's like you're letting go of their memory and you're letting go of honoring them. and You're letting go of that connection. And I was never willing to do that. And, and I, as I explained that to her, she kind of got a look on her face and she said, well, is there a different way you can honor her without having to hurt and feel that pain? And I'd never been asked that question in that particular way before. And it was like this light bulb went off in my head of, now wait a minute. I, wait, I've never thought of it that way before. So in the next couple of days, I came up, I've now got a tattoo on my ankle, and it's an infinity sign with birds flying and it's got my my it's got mom in that infinity sign and that infinity sign is me loving her forever but the birds are me letting go of the hurt and the pain 
but still being able to honor her. Um, and since I have gotten that tattoo and I had that breakthrough in September with my therapist and EMDR, I have not had one panic attack, not one anxiety attack, and I have not had one allergic reaction to anything. And that has been a year and a half. That's amazing. Now, let's go back. Did that, that beautiful, brilliant question that she asked you, could, of, could you honor your mom in a different way, was that sort of the, the gateway to go towards healing? Yes. It was the permission that I needed to let go of all of that pent-up, built-up hurt, trauma, pain, agony that I had held on to because I thought that that was the only way that I could make her proud, Mm -hmm. that I could keep that connection with her and to honor her because I love her. And, you know, I didn't get to tell her when she was here Mm -hmm. as much as I should have. Mm -hmm. Can you do a thought experiment um, if you could imagine seeing the same therapist mm-hmm. who it sounds like you really really cared about and trusted without EMDR mm-hmm. doing talk therapy with, without EMDR and her posing that same question to you after X number of weeks of therapy would it have worked the same for you? I don't believe so because I would not have been able to see out of all of that pain and that trauma it was so clouding it was so overwhelming that anytime I even thought about my mother it was an overwhelming traumatic emotional experience it was never a you know you think about your mom oh that's nice I remember this it was an overwhelming almost debilitating Mm -hmm. to even even think about that or even think about her so perhaps the EMDR progressively dialed down your nervous system to allow you to get to a place where then she can, she can present again that beautiful, profound and healing question of yeah, how long do you need to suffer? Yeah, yeah. And I was able to hear that question when before I knew I would not be able to. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have I couldn't have found my way through all of that hurt and darkness and trauma to f- hear that question. How far into the therapy did that occur? Do you remember? It was about three and a half or four months. Mm-hmm. And how many sessions of EMDR? Um, we were doing three a week. Oh, you're doing a lot. Okay. We were doing a lot. So you had put in some major time and emotional energy into this before this breakthrough. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And those first sessions were really emotionally difficult. Mm-hmm. But I knew that anything worth doing is worth is hard to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. But if I stuck with it, it was the only it was the only option I had at that point. Did you see any improvement in your symptoms in those initial weeks when you're committing to doing three times a week EMDR? And- Things got worse. Mm. Things got worse. Um, I had more panic attacks. I had a few more um, allergic reactions. But the more I went. And the more I stuck with it after those first two and a half, three weeks, it started getting better. And that's when I knew I had made the right decision and I needed to stick with it. And it was. Did she warn you of that? That she did. You might get worse before you get better. She did. Yeah. She did. But at that point, I had nowhere else to go. 
mm-hmm. because I'm imagining you you're already in the worst darkest place you are having these terrible attacks you go to her start doing EMDR three times a week and you get even worse yes even more anxious and panicked and yet you hang in there yeah because you felt that was your only hope that I felt that was my only hope that was my only option at that point I had I had done the other you know medical doctors I had done everything else that I could possibly think of and I was out of options and when did you know you were better? Well, I had I had not had any panic attacks. I had not had any allergic reactions. And I had noticed I was able to be around pickles and cucumbers in the same room. And I thought, well, that's really odd. I, but I, I like can't it. be around pickles. <laughs> I, can't. I can't. He has an aversion think, could, to that. Could EMDR fix that for me? We can only hope. Okay. Yeah, I can't. I can't do pickles. <laughs> Cucumbers, I can do that. So we, so I, you just inadvertently found yourself in proximity able, to pickles, and being fine, being in proximity to pickles and cucumbers, and then literally about I don't know, it's probably six weeks ago, I had brought home some watermelon juice, and I noticed it had cucumbers in it, and I looked at I looked at my sweetheart, and I said, "Hey, what do you think?" I said, "I have an EpiPen here." I said, "You're here." I'm safe. What do you say? I take a sip and see what happens. And he looked at me with his eyes as big as saucers. He said, you really want to do that? And I said, well, I'm, I'm here with everything that I need. I just am curious. He said, okay. So I take a little shot glass and I take a shot glass. Nothing happens. And so I said, hey, I think I'm okay and he said well I don't know about that because he he saw everything that I had gone through from being even in the room with a pickle and um so I had I I had had drank the watermelon juice and then um a couple of days later I was going for lunch and I said you know what I'm gonna have pickles on my sandwich and and they said okay so I ate a chicken sandwich with pickles on it last week oh yuck (laughs) That's so (laughs) gross. Did you keep seeing the trauma therapist for a while after this breakthrough? I did. I did until she finally kind of looked at me and said, you know, we might be able to, you know, take these back to once every once in a while (laughs) until you feel like you need one because you're coming in here pretty happy and carefree these days. (laughs) I said, all right, all right. (laughs) I'll make room for people that need it. (laughs) I see at least two important takeaways from Sophie's story. First, trauma can and often does present in unusual and mysterious ways. In Sophie's case, I suspect that the traumatic freeze response, powered by her parasympathetic nervous system, eventually activated an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis. In the show notes, I have a link to this phenomenon. While her repeated epinephrine injections often did help push her out of her anaphylactic freeze back into fight-flight, they didn't stop the relentless progression of her trauma response. Second takeaway, like the other storytellers on this podcast, Sophie's course of healing was more like a marathon than a 5K. She needed many, often difficult and painful sessions of EMDR to move towards the resolution of her trauma. Doing two or three sessions of EMDR or another exposure-based trauma treatment 
and expecting to be healed is like jogging around the block a few times and expecting to run the Badwater 135. Therapy is hard work. It can be a long haul, but it just might change your life. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.